0: Hi everyone, and welcome to Take 10 for Torah, number 825. I hope you all are well. Any questions, comments, suggestions, recommendations, or sponsorships, please email me at RabbiIsmach at Take10forTorah.org. I wanted to talk about something that comes out of this week's Parsha but is actually relevant to every single day of our lives. You know, in yeshiva, they teach us a lot of chumash, and they teach us a lot of gemara, and they teach us a lot of different subjects. But when we get older, one of the things that anchor us to Jewish practice and Jewish observance isn't necessarily Gemara and Chumash, of course. It should be, and of course we spend the time taking as much time, even more than 10 minutes a day, involved in those things. But the thing that we're busy with is the sitter right? That's the text that becomes most important. We go to shul three times a day, hopefully we go on Shabbos. And so what I wanted to talk about is is the power of that sitter. Uh, as many of you know, I give a class on Monday night. Those who are interested in the uh, recordings of that class, this might be a good introduction to some of the thinking that goes behind that. And so it, it comes from a couple of sukkan that we find in this week's parasha, Yaakov is about to die. Vayom Yisrael al Yosef, and he says to Yosef, Hinei Anochi Meitz, I'm going to die. V'haiya Elokim imachem veheshev eschem el Arizavosechem. You know, one day you're going to be going back to the land of your forefathers, out of Egypt, back to Eretz Yisrael. And then he says, V'anin asati l'chashchem achad al achacha. I'm giving you one shchem over your brethren, Ashalakachti miyahu Amori becharbi uvechkashti, that I took from the Amorites with my cherev, becharbi the with my keshas. So my cherev, my sword, my keshas, refers to my bow, my bow and arrow. And what's this talking about? So Yaakov is telling Yosef, listen, Yaakov is about to ask Yosef the following. It says, He's going to ask him, don't bury me in Egypt instead. Go and take me to Erez Israel. So, That's the request that he's going to give, and that's a chesed shal emes, a chesed that has no repayment, because, of course, the person who gets that chesed is never around again to repay, but in anticipation of that, he tries to give Yosef something, and that's this shem achar. What's the shem? So some understand that a shem is a portion. Yosef, this is going to be your extra portion in Eretz Yisrael. Indeed, Yosef himself ends up being taken to Eretz Yisrael to be buried, and he is buried in Shechem. But others understand that Shechem refers to the city of Shechem, which Yaakov took, becharbi Uvakashti with sword, with military tools, How? In the story with Dina where Yaakov's sons overtook the city of Shechem and that's how they conquered it. So that's one perspective on where this place is and what it's referring to and how it was attained by Yaakov. Not everybody understands it this way. If you take a look at Rashi, Rashi is a different interpretation of how he actually achieved this Shechem Achad, this portion or this place, Shechem. But Targum Onkelos tells us something very interesting. It's based on a Gemara. It says, Becharbi uvekashti Targum Onkelos, Bitselusi with my prayers and with my supplications so the cherev is the prayers and the keshes, the bow and arrow refers to the supplications two different type of prayers. And it's interesting why the Gemara chooses to read this so non-literally, right? It does say it was taken with a keshes, it was taken with a bow and arrow, it was taken with the sword. It doesn't say anything about being taken through tefillah, so it's difficult to understand why you would think this way. Some understand that, simply, it doesn't seem to be describing military technique, right? If you have a battle using archers and then using infantry, who shoots first? Usually it's the archers, right? The archers go and shoot, I don't know, that's how it works in the movies. The archers are the ones the shoot first and then there's a uh, you know a cloud of arrows that comes on the opposing army and inevitably some people are lost through those arrows and then the infantry goes and charges so it should be because the fact that bacharbi is out of order seems to indicate that there's something going on over here there's something up and so the question then becomes if we're talking about something non-literal and we're talking about achieving and getting this thing this shem with charbi uvekashti, so then, what's the double expression about? Why is tefillah and supplications, what's the difference there? So, there's a classic interpretation that's offered by the Chachma, Rav Meir Simcha of Devinsk. He says that charbi and kashti are two very different types of weapons. If you think about it, an arrow has no power, right? An arrow, you could poke somebody with an arrow, nothing's going to happen to them. They're generally not built to be that sharp and that dangerous. But when you marry that arrow to a bow and the power of the archer and pulling back the bow and creating all of that potential energy and he lets go, then it can create something very powerful and very damaging and destructive. But if you think about a cherev, a charbi, right? Referring to a sword, that sword can be very sharp. It, on its own, could be something which is very dangerous, that if something falls on it, it could be torn, it could be broken, it could be cut. And so the difference between cherev and keshes, cherev on its own is very sharp and dangerous and damaging, whereas the keshes is not on its own damaging, but is only potentially damaging. It depends on the energy that we put into it. And so he explains that there are different types of tefillah. There's the type of tefillah, the type of prayer, which is inherently useful, inherently productive. There's the type of tefillah that's inherently powerful. The words, the formulation, the concepts, the notions in those words are significant. It's poetry, it's meaningful, it's purposeful, and it is very powerful. Those are powerful words. That is the charbi. And then there's kashti. Then there's a the type of prayer which is very, really inarticulate. I'm not saying anything particularly sophisticated, but I'm saying it with such energy that empowers it to accomplish things that it never would have been able to do on its own. So when we take a look at davening, there's tefillah and there's supplications. There's charbi and there's kashti. There's certain tfilos that are in our siddur, that are coined, that are phrased a particular way. And that way, we'll see in a second, are very meaningful. And then there are the prayers that we just say, like, out of desperation, when we don't necessarily have the ability to articulate something Uh, which has been articulated for us, and we're kind of sort of thinking of how to do it on our own, that is this other type of prayer. They're both possibly useful, but they're very, very different, which calls into question the whole idea of a standardized sitter. Why is it, everybody asks, where there isn't supposed to be a one-size-fits-all perspective to Judaism, why is it that we all daven from the same sitter? Why is it that we all articulate things in the same way? And so the Rambam explains that really this was caused by people's inability to articulate properly. People had command over the Hebrew language, and then they lost that command. They weren't able to articulate tfilos, and the truth is, if, if you were challenged to create tfilos every single day which were articulate, which were poetic, which were deep and profound and meaningful, not just, you know, rub-a-dub-dub, thank God for the grub, something very base and plain, but something sophisticated, which calls in themes of, you know, not just about you, but about Kal Yisrael, people around you, and about your family, and about history, working all of that into each other, that's not so easy to do, and that's what Chazal, that's what the rabbis attempted to do for us in our Shmona Esrei, and in our coined Tefillah. Of course, they left portions and areas where we were able to insert our own things, of Of course, when going through the gamut of requests, let's say in our Shmona Esrei, there's plenty of space for us to go and include our specific requests under those category headings. But the idea of needing a sitter, of creating powerful words created by prophets, created by scholars, people who not only understood what the words mean, but drew those words from sources in Tanakh and drew them from sources that contextually empowered those words to mean something much more than they mean. For example, and this is an example uh, that I think uh, will resonate. You know, when we talk about Yala V'yavo, which is one very small coined tefillah that we say on holidays. Yala V'yavo, V'yagiyah, Raevi, V'yiratzeh, Shama. All of these words are referring to words of prayer going up. Yale, it should ascend, V'yavo, it should come, V'yagiyah, it should reach, etc., etc. And so we have a whole bunch of expressions meaning the same thing. What is that all about? So the Avodraham explains, and this is just one of so many examples, the Avodraham explains that if you source every single one of those words in Tanakh, you'll find the context where that word is used to describe prayers that have been accepted or that had been accepted. And he gives multiple examples of this phenomenon. And so if you take a look at the Sitter itself and you study the Sitter, and that's why I give that class, the story of the Sitter on Monday nights, and it's proven very popular because I think people People are looking to understand this book that we open up and stare at every week, multiple times a day, all of the time. The sitter has a tremendous amount of wisdom to it. That's the cherev. That's the sword. It's inherently sharp, it's inherently powerful, and it's something that it really behooves us to understand better, because it could really be used as a very powerful weapon on our behalf. Of course, there's the keshas. You know, they're the times that we organically pray, the times that we call out from our hearts and from our souls, and we want something so desperately, we don't have the right words, but we have the right feeling, the emotion, and we can project that hopefully extremely far, with our own power. But I believe it's really important for us to understand what Chazal meant when they called the Siddur, when they called Tefillah a Understanding this idea of the Meshachachma, that it's inherently powerful, hopefully will get us to study why that is and how that is and make our Tfilos that much more meaningful. Have a great day.